Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week, we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this episode 271, where we're joined by Dr. Vivian Asimos. Vivian, welcome to the show. Hello. Dr. Asimos, can you tell us a little bit about what you study and what your area of expertise is? Yeah, so I'm an anthropologist specializing in mythology and particularly contemporary mythology. I spent a lot of time studying uh, online horror stories as mythology, analyzing them using very typical anthropological analyses for myths to learn a lot more about our contemporary society. So yeah, I spend a lot of time talking about popular culture and contemporary stories as our mythology. Excellent. I feel like that's a great place to start because I know that you currently teach an online course called Digital Monsters, which is the study of online monstrosity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't want I want people to go and take the course, obviously, but I would love to hear a little yeah. bit of like teasers about it. Uh, well, so digital monsters are it's obviously my favorite. It's what I specialized in. I spent a lot of time digging into it. I wrote a book on it. I love them. But basically, the course, as well as my book, kind of talks a lot about what monsters mean. So all of these different monsters that we have in contemporary society all mean something in the way that our myths used to mean things and our myths still mean things. Um, and so basically it's starting to do a little bit of an analysis of them, kind of digging into them and explaining a little bit about what some of them uh, are actually saying. So I do spend time on the Slenderman because he's my boy. <laughs> um, but I also talk about Ben Drowned, and I talk about the Momo Challenge, um, and uh, Lavender Town Syndrome is in the book, but not the course. So I've got, I tried to delve into all sorts of different ones, and I'm always looking at new ones as well. Amazing. I actually, I don't think I know Ben Drowned. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Oh, that one was from like... 2008, 2010, somewhere in that little thing. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that it's a cartridge of The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. Oh. And it's haunted by the spirit of a dead kid that drowned. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> the story itself is a bit like when you read it, it's a bit, it's like all the creepypastas where the storytelling's not like the best in the mm. world. But the um, they posted up like, edited versions of the game that they purposely made look really glitchy. Ooh. And so when I was like at university, that was like one of the first ones I discovered and was looking online and I had that temporary moment of like, oh, this is a weird version of the game before realizing it was all messed up. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a creepy game to start out with Majora's Mask, but then adding glitches and creepy sounds and stuff to it, it just... Ugh, it's beautiful. I want to come back to Slenderman and online mythology and stuff, but you've transitioned us so nicely into your course of study where you talk about the potentiality of video games to be contemporary mythology in pop culture. Yeah. And I feel like we got to talk about that because you talked about Lavender Town Syndrome and now I know about Ben Drowned. So <laughs> let's, let's talk about that a little because I think it's such an interesting concept and it's something that I feel like I have vaguely heard but never had anyone either explain it to me or dive deep into it. So hit me with it. I want to hear all about it. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it comes down to the idea of stories. And um, I mean, to like really take it back, I've always really loved myths. I'm preaching to the choir, I know. <laughs> but I, I always really liked reading them. And when I was a lot younger, I used to think, oh, why don't we tell stories that like mean stuff like this anymore? Right. And then when I got older, I was like, of course we still are. But it's just the way that it's presented to us is really different. It's not presented in these old tomes. It's presented to you in a movie or in a book or in a TV show or in a video game. And, and video games in particular are a really fascinating version of it because myths and, and the old myths as well uh, were never just read or even just spoken. There was a performance to it. Yeah. There was always a ritual. There was always, and even if they were just telling the story, the process of storytelling is this performance in and of itself that's part of the story as much as the words were a part of the story. And so video games are this perfect embodiment of how that happens with contemporary storytelling where you, you're like in it and you're performing it and you're part of it while you're still engaging with the story and telling it. So I do a really boring for it version of um, myth analysis that's a, a type of structuralism. 
But to kind of distill the boring stuff out of it, one of the things that's part of it is this idea of implicit mythology. So mm. explicit mythology are like the words that you're reading. Um, or if you got, I don't know, the script of the game, that would be the explicit. But the implicit is all of that other stuff. It's the connection to the place. It's the connection to the stories. It's the way people feel. It's the performance of it. It's the ritual connected to it. It's world building, isn't it? Yeah. And so for me, the mythology of video games isn't just the story. It's also this implicit myth part of it. And you kind of have to look at both at the same time in order to get the full picture of of the myth. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that so, so much. And the idea that mythology in the past has always been told as a story, as like a storyteller, and then giving that performance to an audience. Video games even take that the step further because you are embodying the hero of the story in that sense, which is fascinating and not something that like the average, like if you went to go see, I guess, a play in ancient Greece as an audience member, you weren't acting out the part of Dionysus or the, the chorus or anything like that. You were in video games now, you are a part of the story, which is so... Yeah, the video games is that you're the actor on the stage rather than the person sitting in the audience, yeah. And that opens up an opportunity that a lot of people didn't have in the oral tradition of mythology before that, which is yeah. really cool. Oh my God, I'm yeah. just like thinking about it now. I'm like, oh, I know. My my brain is like free associating to like, I, I did a literature degree and just thinking about like the Canterbury Tales even as like a sort of, it's like a narrative RPG. Like it is, it is t taking you through. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and kind of like presenting you with sort of dilemmas. And I listen, I read it once for a class many years ago, but like the... <laughs> The text of it pays a lot of attention, kind of giving you details and bringing you on this journey with these characters. And I know there have been so many, you know, play versions and you, you know, hear somebody's recitation of an oral tale and it's their particular version in your particular place. And like, what are these video games, whether they are MMORPGs or not, they are spaces that we can all inhabit, similar to the sort of like you know, constructed universes of the tales that we might think of as as more classical mythology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like agency is really important in this. And it's something that even when you're talking about the kind of classic oral traditions of this stuff um, that I think is sometimes lost in the way that people talk about stuff is particularly when they talk about the changes in stories, they think about it as going, oh, you know, you kind of mess up because you have to memorize because it's not written down. But that's not really that accurate. So a lot of people would change the story because they wanted to, because yeah. that's what they did as a storyteller and, and things would change over time. So they would change the story to reflect the time that they were in or the place that they were in. And there's a lot of agency in the act of the storyteller. And, and that's something that is kind of carried forward to a lot of contemporary storytelling is it's not just video games either, because obviously there's that agency. But even like fan fiction oh, yeah. is essentially the audience having their own agency over the, the shift of canon, essentially. Yeah. This reminds me of the fact that, for example, in the quote unquote Greek canon, a lot of the conquests of Zeus, whether it's like sexual conquests or whatever, were typically the like overarching Greek canon was going into these cities or these villages where they worshipped another deity that wasn't mm -hmm. the main Olympians. And so we call it, lol, it's not pagan, it's fine when it's Christianity. <laughs> but um, for stuff like Greece, like all of a sudden this warrior goddess is now a conquest of Zeus in the canon. And that is like the Greek poets being like, oh, Zeus is better. Therefore, we're changing the narrative of the story. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I mean, I don't love that they did that, but I love that we can connect <laughs> that to modern yeah. day storytelling. Well, I mean, we need that. Like that's, stories are always really important to humans and societies and, and who we are as people. And so when our times change around us, our stories kind of have to change. And I think we've seen that really radically within the last couple of years of how dramatic some of our stories have shifted, how dramatic some of the way we tell our stories has shifted. And that's just gonna keep happening. We've just seen it in a much more radical position in the last couple of years, but that's just always been happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, as my brain just free associates on the topics I most love to talk about, which are these topics, I am thinking too about um, someone was telling me recently about their grandparents' love of like forwarding email uh, memes and, and like images. And like, you know, back in the early days of email forwarding, we're like chain emails and kind of just like forwarding a meme basically to everyone in your address book. For those of you who are too young to remember these. <laughs> 
was very popular. The best part to me was the kind of like textual degradation of the source material as it got forwarded and reprinted, like in the idea of making a, you know, a copy of a copy of a copy of like the flyer in your library where it's like the the text was black, but now it's like a light gray because it's just been copied so many times. Mm -hmm. And you could see that happening in these chain emails where the images would get compressed by people's like email servers or the email subject would be like forward, colon, forward, colon, forward, colon, (laughs) a million times. And that is something that I really love kind of seeing the tendrils and almost the citations or like the decision trees and everybody's comments and metadata on these stories. Is that something, Dr. Asimos, that you're interested in or that factors into your research at all, the kind of like provenance of these stories? Yeah. I mean, I haven't done email chains in particular, but I mean, Creepypasta has the similar idea um, of it being shared in in the copy-paste format, which is where the name yes. comes from, before the share button existed, our younger listeners. <laughs> there is a lot of, of the process of storytelling, because again, it, it's the, the performance of it. It's not just the text of the Slenderman and, and this is what the Slenderman does. Like, that's not really that interesting, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the way people talk about it, the way people craft it, the way that people interact with it. And there, there's a lot of what I, I it's in character storytelling. Yeah. So the way that people kind of everyone knows it's a story and everyone knows that it's this fake thing that we're all making up, but we're going to talk about it like it's this real urban legend and we're going to talk about it like it's this real thing. And the process of doing that is essentially making it a form of real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what's really fascinating to me. It's it's a lot of the way people tell the stories and craft it and create little communities around one story. And it's almost like this microcosm of a community that'll pop up and then disappear because sometimes these stories don't last, you know, they'll, they'll be around for like a good, I mean, three months if you're lucky, and then (laughs) it'll just disappear. And then another one will pop up. And, and one of the things that I found really interesting about the Slender Man was just how because he's existed for so long and he didn't have that disappearing moment, that that one's been really fun to, to see how it's shifted over time. The He looked really different at the beginning than he does now and mm. seeing how that's shifted, why that's shifted and, and all of that. It's, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think there's something really interesting in kind of the idea of, for example, in creepypastas, but I'm also thinking of like fandom in general, how online communities latch on to little things about the original source and then that like expands into what the character fully is like amanda i'm sure you can come up with like a fandom example where it's like this character mentioned liking bagels one time and so in all fan fiction that character is always eating (laughs) bagels you know what i mean exactly Yeah. I just really like the idea that online communities kind of like in the original Slenderman text, you know, like they decided like, oh, okay, we're going to like cherry pick this, this, this and this. And this is going to be what we expand upon about this character or about this text. I mean, those are like the, you know, the like violet eyes of, you know, whatever character where that was mentioned once or like their, you know, penchant for like black combat boots. I feel like the like MCU, like the sort of Avengers, this is particularly common in. But I mean, that's just like a Homerian epithet, right? Like it's just rosy fingered Dawn. You know, it's just swift footed Achilles. Like it's the it's the little tag by which we come to understand that person or that character in the fandom imagination. It doesn't make it not real to me. Like this is not so different from, you know, your friend at a sleepover telling you about the Bloody Mary in the mirror. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's actually supposed to have, you know, three repetitions or four repetitions. It's whatever you're told is real. And then that that's what you reproduce and you tell to the people at the next sleepover. Yeah, yeah I don't know if um uh, how familiar you guys are with the subreddit No Sleep. Mm-hmm. Quite, yeah. The main rule on No Sleep, everything is true here, even if it isn't, has like become my mantra in everything that I do and I study because it just so perfectly encapsulates everything of everything is true, even though it's not, but it, but it is, but it's not. Yeah. And so we we talk very often about the stuff that we find to be in this podcast purview is like mythology, folklore, storytelling of all kinds, not just the stuff that, you know, academic textbooks would tell you is important for lots of messed up reasons, but also because the stories that live on are important because they live on. Like they're important because someone told them, they're important because someone who heard them felt them important enough to reshare and to retell it and like give it more life. So what is your kind of big brain theory? Like why is this stuff so true? Why is it so important to us? What really 
snagged you about it in the first place and kind of keeps you coming back? Well, so I have my own definition of mythology, which actually kind of combines myth, legends, and folklores all at once, which kind of gets me into trouble a lot in academia, but I don't care. Hey, on this show, it's fine. But anyway, yeah, so I define it by uh, essentially its function, what it's doing for the people who are telling the story. And so for me, a myth is a narrative or something akin to a narrative, I leave it open, that an individual or a community uses to understand themselves and the world around them. Totally. So if you are using a story to better understand yourself as a person, to better understand the community you find yourself in or the world that you find yourself in, then that story is a myth. And it doesn't matter whether it's Star Wars or whether it's Ganesha, it is a myth. So that's where I always start from. And I got into this because I, I started with the Legend of Zelda series, because as mm. you can tell, I like it. <laughs> and I, I met someone during some field work where they had a tattoo of the Triforce like on their upper arm. And uh, for people who don't know the Legend of Zelda series, because I'm not going to pretend that everyone is as nerdy as me, <laughs> the Triforce is like three triangles. And the idea is that each one represents um, a type of emotion, character trait. It's power, wisdom, and courage. And the story is that if someone touches the sacred Triforce that has an equal balance of wisdom, power, and courage in them, then they will get any wish granted to them. But if they don't, then the Triforce breaks and then you have to kind of reassemble it in a crazy way, <laughs> you know, through the video game. This person I was talking to said that they always liked to look at the tattoo whenever there was a moment in their life that they had to make a big decision or if they were really struggling with something in order to remind themselves that the best way of doing things is to always approach stuff with an equal balance of wisdom, power, and courage. Mm -hmm. And of course this person would not put on like a census sheet that they were Hylian, <laughs> you know, but it's still something that they used to navigate themselves in the world. It was something mm -hmm. that they used in order to understand their best version of themselves. And so for me, that was a myth. And being in, I, I kind of did a lot of my studies in religious studies departments where it was always very firmly, what, but what do they really believe? What do they put on a census record? Do they go to a church? And of course I was like, well, no. <laughs> But it doesn't mean it's less real, you know, to them, it still gives them insight into who they are as a person and what their role is in the universe, right? Yeah. And so for me, that's, that's where it comes into. And it's always therefore based on who I'm talking to that is determining what a myth is for them. Mm -hmm. So what a myth is for you is, might be different than what my myths are. But what's important is, is how we're using the story and how we're feeling about the story and how we're interacting with the story. And that's always the same. I love that. I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> no, that did. 100%. Oh, yeah. I want to just do little cul-de-sacs of conversational tangents yeah. in every yeah. bit of what you're saying. Well, so, yeah, because I'm, I'm, I've kind of been getting into this rabbit hole of, I've been listening to this real play podcast um, mm, yeah. that is based in the Star Wars universe. Oh, okay. Nice. And I'm not a big Star Wars person. I mean, I like it. I've, I've seen the movies and stuff, but I'm not like, oh, I know all the little bits of information. I'm just not that kind of person. Mm -hmm. But I've been really enjoying listening to it. And I've just been binging this, this podcast for ages. But there was a, a point in it where the kind of main host started to talk about uh, the Star Wars community and like thanking the Star Wars community. And she was crying. There was a certain point listening to her. I was like, oh my God, she's crying. Talking about how she... You know, it started where she would use it as a way to connect to her dad as a way. And then it became this place where all of her friends were. And then it became, you know, the way that she's now connecting to the community of her podcast audience. And then it became the way she understood herself. And she talks a lot about the Sith and the way, you know, what their Sith code is and how that helps to establish like understandings of the world versus all this other stuff. And it was just like this huge, crazy monologue where I was like, I could have used you like five years ago when I was writing papers. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm talking about is, is that level of, of emotion and connection to its popular culture, but that doesn't matter. It's it's meaningful and it's important and it's something that you understand yourself through. Yeah. I mean, I've absolutely in like the philosophy and religious arts sections of bookstores seen like the Zen of the Force and like oh, the yeah. Sith Code <laughs> books. Like that's 100% a thing. And like, I'm pretty sure like the like Path of the Jedi or something to that effect is like a 
established religion that you can write down on your census yes excellent i love that so yeah there are things called um uh at least in the academic world we call them hyper real religions or invented religions which are based on pop culture stuff Mm -hmm. And Jediism is the the big name one that everyone always drops. I tend to kind of see things a little bit more gray than that, but mm-hmm. um, but yes, Jediism is definitely a thing. Hundred percent, yes. Only because I know that I bought one of those books for my husband in the past, so <laughs> I, I'm aware. But I, yeah, I really do love this idea that stories. You know, we're talking about something as grand a scale as Star Wars, which is a huge franchise and like, you know, conventions just based on Star Wars, that kind of thing. But the fact that you can see something as just like a independently published book or something like that can become a religious text to someone or at least a mythological text to someone if they relate. I absolutely love that concept and it's not something that I ever considered before. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I just, I I love where your brain's at and it makes me very, very happy to be having these discussions. That's awesome. We're going to be right back to ask you a couple more questions, but first we're going to go grab a refill. Julie, I'm having so much fun talking to Dr. Asimos. But first, we have some new guests here. We have a new patron, Stellar C. Thank you for joining. Hey, you came to the party. Hang up your coat. Grab a snack. There's drinks in the corner. Enjoy. Amazing. You can also always find some great conversation with our supporting producer level patrons who are hanging out by the uh, by the ice and the drinks over there. Alicia and Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, J. Bay Bay, Jessica Kinzer, Jessica Stewart, Nieselkins, Little Vomit Spiders Running Around, Megan Moon, Phil Fresh, Captain Jonathan, Malachi, Cosmos, Sarah Scott, and Zazie. And of course, those legend level patrons, Audra, Bex, Clara, Drew, Lexus, Morgan, Mother of Vikings, Sarah, Taylor, and BM Yep Scotty. I trust them, Julia, to like self-serve their own coffee and drinks. I'm like, you know where the stuff is. Like, go get yourself some water. I, I, I trust you. Of course. They've been here before. They know what's yeah. up. Yeah. They do. And if you want to get your name read, if you want to enjoy the uh, many, many years of bonus content that we have put out there, if you want to get customized alcoholic and non-alcoholic drink recommendations for every dang episode we put out so far, go to patreon.com slash spirits podcast. Do it. It's so great. And it helps us make this show a reality and be able to do this as our full-time jobs. And it's incredible. Totally. Amanda, what have you been watching, listening to, reading lately? What's up? How you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. My grandma and I have a two-person book club where we read detective fiction and mysteries and romance. And we have really been enjoying the Lady Emily series. Mm -hmm. The first one is called And Only to Deceive. And it is about a Regency era young woman whose husband, who she like feels okay about, dies suddenly. Mm -hmm. And she kind of unravels the mystery of his death and gets very into classical Greek mythology she does so so she is like a lady of means who gets the chance to like learn ancient greek and like go find sculptures and she has a bunch of like friends and her story intersects with like real life painters and composers from that era in europe and it's very fun there's like 15 of the books so my grandma and i always get so excited when there are enough books that it's like okay this will last me for a few weeks at least Mm -hmm. so that's been our our latest pick uh that i have really been enjoying i love that tell your grandma i say hey i will and if you have have been listening to all of the multitude shows lately and you have run out of episodes on your favorites good news we actually make a weekly friendly debate show featuring all of the hosts of multitude called head heart gut so every month we take an iconic set of three items from pop culture or the world we live in and we pit them against each other and the first three weeks it's like each of the contestants presents their choice they answer questions in the definitive survey of greatness which is excellent and then in week four each contestant participates in like basically a formal debate with a special guest judge. We've decided stuff like best fruit, best movie sequel, best thing to do at a theme park. It's spiel rides, according to me. Trust me. And uh, this month, it's best comic book villain, where you can hear Julia throw down with Eric Silver and Sally Tamarkin, guest judged by our new community manager, Rue. Magneto should win. BT dubs, just just letting you know ahead of time. We'll see. And there's only one way you can find out who wins, which is to join the multi-crew. Go to multicrew.club and for as little as five bucks, get access to Head Heart Gut, our high intensity, low stakes debate show. It's great. I love it so much. And finally, Julia, we want to thank our sponsors, one of whom I get really giddy now when it's my turn at home to clean the kitchen. In fact, I've started cleaning the sink every night because my Blue Land cleaning products are so fun to use. Mm -hmm. And Blue Land learned 
that 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year. That's too many. And so they make absolutely fantastic cleaning products where they send you beautiful glass bottles in their starter kit, their clean essentials kit. And that includes like a glass hand soap dispenser and things like that. And then lovely tablets where you can put it in the glass cleaning bottle, a little like chalky tablet, fill it up with water, shake it up. And then there you go. Boom. You have glass cleaner to last you four months and there is no plastic involved. I love it. Honestly, their stuff is so nice and the bottles just look so pretty. I like having them out to clean with. Like I don't feel embarrassed that there's cleaning products on my counter. They're color coded so you know exactly which product each is for. I have fully transitioned over my entire house. I love them a lot. And right now you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash spirits. That's 20% off your first order of any Blue Land products at blueland.com slash spirits. Blueland.com slash spirits. This time of year, it's kind of funky with weather wise. Like sometimes it's like almost 50 degrees out. Sometimes it's like below zero. And I'm just so unsure of like what to wear or what my bedroom is going to feel like when I go to bed. But I know always that my bed is going to be extremely comfortable because of Brooklinen's five-star collection of cozy essentials where I could just lounge my way through a long weekend. The comfort you crave, Amanda, not only is it from Brooklinen, but it's now on sale at Brooklinen's President's Day sale. They cover mm-hmm. the bases on comfort in every corner of your space, and there's no better time to step up your comfort. You can wrap up in Brooklinen's signature sheets and see exactly what all of those over 100,000 five-star reviews are all about. So invest in your comfort that you deserve with Brooklinen from loungewear to bedding. They keep the cozy coming. I love my Brooklinen sheets so, so very much. I don't want to get out of bed some mornings. A friend of mine just moved to a new place and needed to kind of start over with all of her home essentials. And so I sent her all of my non-Brooklinen sheets because now I will only sleep on Brooklinen sheets. Again, that is not a lie. I just did that yesterday. So listen, don't sleep on savings. Brooklinen's President's Day sale is happening now. If you are listening after the sale, by the way, you can still get the deals of your dreams at Brooklinen.com with promo code SPIRITS. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com slash spirits. Thanks, Brooklinen. Thanks. And finally, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on the show, and this month we're discussing some of the stigmas around mental health. Julie, what were some of the stigmas that you grew up hearing or not having challenged around mental health? Mostly like, oh, oh, you have to go to a therapist. What's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with me. I just like to have someone to talk to. Exactly. It can be so, so helpful. And I have been getting therapy through BetterHelp for a couple of years now. It is so convenient to know that I can message with my therapist securely in their app. I can move my appointment if need be. And I don't have to go to any uncomfortable waiting rooms with old crusty copies of The New Yorker. No, thank you. No, thank you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy, just like me. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Spirits listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. So I did have another question because we left off kind of speaking about fandom and stuff like that. I know that you have another area of study, course of study, which involves cosplay. Yes. Well, it is still somewhat connected. Okay. Yes, of course. But it's a it's a new research project that I have been going through. I actually have crowdfunded for it. Awesome. Um, Which was a, a new experience as well. I'm trying to document the research experience, but it's very boring. So it's probably not very interesting. <laughs> we have a lot of scholars in our audience. I'm sure they would find it interesting regardless. <laughs> then they'll find it even more boring. But anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I'm researching cause play from an anthropological angle and always with that myth thing in my head. Mm-hmm. And for me, what makes cosplay interesting is that it's 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 a lot of what we're talking about, right? Is right. for you to cosplay as this character, you have to really like them. You have to really like the story it's coming from. You have to really connect to that story. And then you're dressing as the character and you're performing as the character, you're acting as them, and you're kind of temporarily living in the myth. Mm -hmm. So it's this huge idea of mythic performance. And performance is a really important part of cosplay. What I have always been interested in is how people pick their cosplays. 
Mm-hmm. Part of anthropology is doing participant observation, which means I don't only observe, but I have to participate. <laughs> so I have been trying to put together my own cosplay and having to pick who I was going to do was really hard. Yeah. I like a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> what a big mood. Yes. 100%. Yeah, it was it was so hard. And there was um, a documentary that I watched where there was a cosplayer, professional cosplayer who was saying that the way she chose to who to cosplay when she picked people who had personality traits that she wanted to embody that she didn't have but kind of wished she had and that to me is like I mean I could write 800 chapters (laughs) on just that it's such a fascinating little little world that is taken as very banal from the surface level it's like oh those weirdos dressing up it is so fascinating and intricate and there's so many different little facets to it of again agency of transforming characters it's not just perfect replication as you have gender bending and people who have like changed it and sexy cosplays as well people who change the characters to kind of fit either the gender they want or the appeal that they want depending Mm -hmm. on the type Mm-hmm. And they are essentially changing the character to fit their own version of the story. So it's like mm-hmm. a little embodied fan fiction mythic performance. It's amazing. Oh, God, I have two like crossroads that I want to go through here. I really liked what you mentioned about the professional cosplayer choosing characters that kind of embody ideas that or personality that she would like to embody. And it reminds me, friend of the show, Eric Silver, Amanda's fiance, is a dungeon master by trade and has talked about how a lot of times when you're creating a Dungeons and Dragons character, you're often reaching for a characteristic or personality that you wish that you could inhabit as well. Mm. So I love this idea that, yeah, I chose, I'm trying to think of a, a good character to, I don't know, like, I, I chose this character because they're really confident and I'm shy in real life is a great example. And I just love that. I love these people who feel that they, you know, you put on a costume and you can be the person that you wanted to be. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing like black cosplayers reclaim space for themselves in pop culture mm-hmm. that is inundated with white characters, seeing plus size cosplayers do, you know, use their bodies as beautiful canvases and not kind of modify or shy away from straight size characters because there just aren't a lot of characters for us plus size people to choose from, particularly not kind of heroic or leading characters. So it's a very exciting way to carve out space for yourself, like you're saying. But also like, again, my free association goes to like, isn't that why we pray? Like, isn't that why we venerate saints? Isn't that why we repeat proverbs and and stories and religion that are not just about relatable kind of human failings, but about people, you know, making impossible choices or persevering or demonstrating qualities that we wish we could channel? Like, that's why I get tattoos. That's why I resonate with characters. That's why I read fanfic, because I want to kind of immerse myself in a aspirational quality of a character in a story that I care about. Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, there's... Ugh. I've been really getting into this whole cosplay. I thought it would be kind of a fun side thing that I would write like one article on. And then I started getting into it. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I got to keep going. (laughs) One of the people that I talked to, we were talking about um, the replication aspect of it. And I was asking about things like particularly body size and in the art of replication and how she felt about it and stuff like that. She said that it it doesn't matter about any of it. It doesn't matter how good your costume is. It doesn't matter what the shape of your body is. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is whether or not you are embodying the character right. Yeah. Mm. Which, I mean, obviously there's questions of what's the right (laughs) way of doing that and all of that kind of stuff, but it's, it's all about this need to be the character. But then that can also open up a huge amount of cans of worms because then you have the the people who I know that um there are certain characters that are really annoying like within their nature and people hate when other people cosplay as them because it's like then the, there's just so many annoying guys running around the con <laughs> instead of like being just just normal because they're too much mm-hmm. it's too much embodiment yeah but yeah so there's there's the performance aspect and the embodying of the myth is just, it's, that is above all else for most of them. Yeah. That's why I love seeing cosplayer photo shoots. Um, A, because I don't go to in-person cons, certainly not in the last couple of years, but I also didn't before that. But also because the world building of those photo shoots is like beyond 
interesting to me, like where they choose to do it, the props, the lighting, the ways that they really use the full canvas and not just their body and costume. Like they are really giving me a window into a world, like they're making themselves a painting. And I'm sure that there's a world of kind of distinction difference, um, you know, what people focus on in-person cosplay versus represented cosplay online. Uh, But that's something that I always so appreciate is the kind of art direction of just the entire scene. Yeah. And I have the opposite experience where I have been to New York Comic Con every year since I graduated college, except for obviously pandemic years. I love that you talked about the performance aspect because one of my favorite Comic Con memories was there was a man who was dressed up as Obi-Wan Kenobi and like went out of his way to interact with every Star Wars cosplayer there, right? (laughs) And he also like had a sign where it's every time he came across an Anakin or a Darth Vader, he's like, I have the high ground. And we're like, you're, you're doing great, <laughs> sweetie. Thank you for for this gift that you're giving us here. Oh, God, what a what a delight these people are. I I have not had the personal experience of cosplaying, mostly because I have no costuming skills whatsoever, and also uh, it costs a lot of money usually to cosplay. Yeah, yeah. But I I'm very curious as to what characters you're personally drawn to since you are going to be participating in the in the future i know it's a hard (laughs) question to ask (laughs) so i i had a lot of trouble picking Mm -hmm. and i you can't really tell too well in the terrible five o'clock at night lighting of the uk (laughs) but i have red hair Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to embody a character that had red hair. Mm -hmm. Um, A, because my hair is way too thick to try to put a wig on. But also just because I like my red hair. And it took me a very long time in my life to grow to appreciate it. So I kind of wanted to appreciate it. There's surprisingly a lot and not very many. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So I I had a really hard time and I ended up deciding to do, um, it's from an anime, the ancient mages' bride, the character Chise, who has very short and very bright red hair. But I was Mm -hmm. like, "Eh, it's probably just like a Japanese thing of making red hair very like in your face red. Um, But then according to the books, it actually is in your face red. So it might have been a little bit too presumptuous of me. But I also picked it because the story of the Ancient Magus's Bride really appeals to me because it's so full of myth. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how into anime you guys are. Fairly well, but not familiar with that one in particular. Oh, so you should watch it. it. You need to watch it. You I'm would love it. I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> it's like there's there's characters and creatures and stuff from all sorts of different myths and folklore. It's supposed to be based in the UK, but they have like Irish gods and they have fairies from different areas. And the Wandering Jew is one of the characters who kind mm-hmm. of comes up. So there's all sorts of different drawings and people are kind of uh, constantly trying to figure out what creature one of the characters is and there's discussions online of who is it and all this kind of stuff. Uh, It's amazing. So it's like that world is one that I I just really appeal to. I would love to be able to like hang out with fairies and talk to gods and stuff like that. That would be so cool. That's why I picked her. But I I was debating on doing a couple of video game characters because I, you know, obviously I love me some video games. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was thinking about Aloy from um, Horizon Zero Dawn because that's Mm. another redheaded badass bitch. (laughs) Sorry, am I allowed to say that? Yes, (laughs) of course you are. But yeah, I was debating on her. I was debating on Hanit, who's from Octopath Traveler, which just looks like a low rent alloy. But you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like you're picking a quality that you feel that you can kind of use to connect with a character and something that maybe, you know, was a a mixed blessing for you in your life that you've come to really appreciate, which I think is a great place to to start kind of fi- finding your cosplay Sona. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Oh my gosh. that I love that you're doing this project. It's so cool. I love the ties to mythology and stuff like that. That's It's going to be incredible. And I can't re- wait to check it out when you are all done with your research oh, and stuff. Thanks. That's going to be so cool. I did want to talk about this just because I came across a podcast episode that you did about AI and religion. And I think that's a really interesting cross that people don't talk about. I feel like it's something that has been explored a lot in science fiction and stuff, but Mm -hmm. I don't think it's something that we talk a lot about in terms of like actual religious 
And I'm talking about like capital B, capital R, big religion, but it's not something that we have a lot of like frank conversations about what this technology is going to mean for organized religion. Yeah. So for anyone who's interested in this, I would suggest going and looking up any of the research done by a very dear friend of mine, Beth Singler. She specializes Mm -hmm. in it much more than I do and can probably speak to it uh, much more eloquently than me as well because she's amazing. But I'm trying to figure out where to start with this because there's, I mean, there's a lot to get into because we can also talk about, you know, that the big question of what is religion it's definitely a question that people should be holding because um, when you say the word religion, particularly in the UK and the US, the first thing is Christianity and nothing else. Yeah. And then maybe you might think of Judaism and Islam after that. They have what's called the big five, which is, you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more religions in the world than those Oh, five, sure is. <laughs> including Jediism. But there's yeah. there's a lot of different religions in the world and, and they're to incorporate all of them under one roof of a definition is literally impossible. If anyone tells you they know exactly what religion is, they're lying to you or they are wrong. (laughs) So, which to me is what makes it amazing and fun and interesting to Mm -hmm. delve into because I like to take things like, say, video games and say, well, let's make it religion and Mm -hmm. see what happens. So I enjoy to play with the greatness. Some other people don't enjoy it as much. But AI kind of coming into the equation, I think, is almost complicating it a bit more. So you have conversations about, you know, if God to you is something that is essentially all-knowing and can kind of watch you and all this kind of stuff, then is, you know, your Alexa a form of God? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know... No, that's a valid question. I love those kind of like thought experiments being like, well, if you define it that way, doesn't this, 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 and this also fall under that category? And they're like, no. (laughs) And there's a lot of really interesting things that, you know, that the conversation comes up with. And there's a lot in regards to questions of morality, Mm -hmm. um, which again, for for many people is tied to religion. Not for Mm -hmm. everyone is tied to religion. I should... Specify. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, particularly white people in the West, morality and religion are inherently tied together. And the introduction of AI and the question of morality connected to that is a really fascinating one. And there was, I think at the time that we recorded that podcast, because this was a couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. um, but I think at the time that we recorded that, it was right when they were talking about having to program in morality into driving, like self driving cars. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're driving a car, and you have to swerve and it's like you're either hitting you know one an elderly person or a kid and you have to like make that decision you know that's gonna factor into stuff but they've got to program that decision into the car yeah and like codify our collective societal morals because the people that the car impacts yeah and so now now you've suddenly got to go okay well what what does everyone think is the right moral choice and of course there's not going to be a solid answer on that because (laughs) see point about all the religions in the world. Mm -hmm. So you have to really start making essentially religious decisions, religious and moral decisions, when you're just creating an AI-driven thing. Yeah. You're asking scientists to solve the trolley problem. Yeah. So maybe uh, maybe rich uh, rich billionaires uh, well, maybe shouldn't be making the moral decisions. Uh, the shouldn't country. be making moral decisions <laughs> that affect the whole country. And this is why social sciences should continue to be funded. Yes, Yay! please, please. <laughs> STEM's important, but also social sciences are too. Yeah. So we'll make sure to put your colleagues' uh, information in the um, in the description of this episode as well, so folks can follow up if they're interested. Yes, do it. She's um, and if you have any questions, she's always happy to talk about it. Um, she's she's a wonderful human being. Oh hell yeah, beautiful. I love that so so much. That was from 2017, the episode that I was. Oh God, was it that long ago? <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> we lost so much time over the past two years. I'm so old oh, now. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all though? Have you found, because we make this space in spirits in part, not to sound too high-minded, because like this this stuff matters. And have you found in your career or in your research needing to kind of prove that it matters? Or or like, you know, have you, I'm sure, again, I don't want to like press on a bruise here, but mm-hmm. sort of, I bet that there are a lot of people listening who know from their 
lived experience that this stuff matters and hearing others, you know, legitimize it, study it, look, point to it and say like, yes, that's a thing is so meaningful. So I just want to give you some space to like address or talk about that if if you wanted to. Oh, you you don't need to keep me from ranting about... <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, academia, traditional academia, I should specify, is a very, it's a space that's full of a very specific type of people, typically white, male, cis, hetero people, and people who think that, you know, studying opera is more important than studying a video game or something like that. Not that opera is not important, but it's the same, <laughs> that level of things of it's more valid for me to learn a dead language and study a book that no one has picked up in 300 years than it is for me to talk about something that many, many, many thousands to millions of people around the world love and connect to. So I am used to fighting these types of people <laughs> mm -hmm. and really making a case for it. And there was a, a particular time, I think it was about two and a half to three years into my PhD that I was just sick of it. And I was sick of trying to dance around it and be like, oh no, but really guys. So um, I was doing a paper at a conference about the subreddit No Sleep. So I decided that I was going to take a screenshot of the sidebar where it tells you how many people are subscribed yeah. to that subreddit and how many people were online at that particular time on just like a random day. I took the screenshot and I put it up <laughs> on my slides to make a point of I was like 32 million people are subscribed to this subreddit. Yeah. And you could see like faces change. <laughs> but because it, especially with anthropology, like everyone studies this small village in the middle of nowhere that three people live in. Mm -hmm. And that's a valid study. And it is a valid study. But the fact that I have to stress the millions of people that do this just to make it seen as the same is incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I keep pushing it. And there was at that same conference, there was at the end of the panel, somebody was like, oh, I'm really glad that like, you've really shown that it you can do research online and talk to people online. And I was like, yeah, no, duh. Like, where yeah. have you been <laughs> in the last 10 years that you think you can't talk to people online? Like... <laughs> You understand that's the way that most people communicate nowadays, right? Uh, it's just, it, yeah. So, um, but I do have to say that I think one of the, the best compliments I've ever received about my research was in, in my Viva, which is like my defense uh, for my PhD. I had um, one of the examiners said that they went into it knowing that I was studying the Slender Man and these people who do this thing as this is very silly. This is a bit of a throwaway and just kind of a little bit scoffy. And they said that they left it feeling like this community had dignity and wow. um, a reason and a passion. And I was like, that, you know, you could fail me. And as long as you've said that, I will be happy. I mean, they didn't fail me. Thank God. I don't know if I would have been happy, <laughs> but they didn't. And <laughs> but like that, I think I, I've so far, I've kind of somewhat left traditional academia now. Mm -hmm. But that is what I endeavor to do with everything is that I want whoever's coming in to leave feeling like the people that I've talked about have a level of dignity and passion and respect and that they are doing things that are good for them and their community. And it's complicated and it's intricate and it's just as complicated and as intricate as, I don't know, your 300-year-old book in a dead language. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Amen. I love that. I love that. I'm tired of people having to argue, hey, my thing is important. Please listen to me. And the fact that someone validated you in that way, that's incredible. I'm glad that they came up to you and said that, certainly. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's always, that's what I live for. But I think that to kind of then swap it back from my own validation to, <laughs> to other people. But I think that that's what I, I would really like for people to learn about things like fan fiction or their cosplays yeah. or, I don't know, even just sitting down and playing your video game is that your experiences and your agency within that story is just as important as the canon. Mm -hmm. And this like, this conversation of canon versus non-canon is always something that I, I really hate in just being a fan. Because for me, a fan fiction narrative is just as important as the canon of the original text. Because 
because your mm-hmm. transformation of it and your agency over that story is inherently important and hearing your voice is inherently important. So always, always make things and always tell your story and in whatever form you want to tell it. You are speaking to the right people, the right hosts, and also the right <laughs> audience, I feel like, in, in that argument, for sure. I do love that passing the validation along, so to speak, I think that people do kind of get told that their writing is silly and that like fan fiction's not worth the time and the effort and stuff like that. And hey, it is. It is. It is. It is. It is. It is. Publish that chapter. Publish Finish it. that whip. Do it and send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even read the, the fandom that you're writing about, but send it to me. I want to hear sure. about it. Sure. Yeah. I know. Have I watched multiple seasons of a show that I mildly cared about because a writer I really loved in fandom wrote fanfic about it? Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> okay, what show? Got it. You got to spill. I watched like four seasons of Supernatural because someone I really loved wrote Supernatural fake. And I was like, well, here we go. I got to do it. You know what? Fair enough. Got to get into it. 100% fair enough. Black Sails is my next one. I, I know. I know people. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to check out your stuff? Yes, yeah, so you can always follow me on both Instagram and Twitter. I am at Vivian Asimos on both of those. I try to regularly post on that stuff about not only the research projects that I'm doing, but also just, I don't know, my incredibly sugary coffees that I occasionally have <laughs> as well. So you Excellent. can always go and join over there. Uh, and you can check out my website, which is incidentalmythology.com, which is a blog where I actually do a little bit of the discussions about contemporary mythology and popular culture as mythology. So uh, if you're interested in, uh, I mean, I'm sure you are. You're listening to this. Yeah. But uh, (laughs) you can go and check that out as well. Incredible. Dr. Asimos, thank you again. And listeners, remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye.